Hey, you college football crazies. If you want more than just a bowl full of chips, don't forget to follow Chappie and the Bip on Twitter. Chappie you can follow at champion underscore lit, and Bip can be found at BFC underscore Bip. See you there. In the land of the 13 colonies that once belonged to the Queen lies the conference that hosts 14 programs, including college football's current Kings. And like any other conference, they have their traditions and rituals too. And because we know you're passionate like us, we'll give you more than a few. There's the entrances like Crazy Train or Running Down the Hill in Death Valley. The canes run through smoke, the tomahawk chop at Doak. All are the best to begin the rally. There's the deacon riding the chopper onto BB&T at Groves. Cabman enters on his horse in Scott Stadium in front of students dressed in ties and pearls in droves. But if you want an equestrian entrance, look first to Florida State. When mighty Chief Osceola fires up the crowd atop his steed, Renegade, who comes to a halt at the Seminole at midfield with his spear lit to a blaze, at which point the chant becomes louder and the decibel levels raise. Miami fires touchdown Tommy to alert there's a score in the yard while a train whistle blasts after scores for the orange and the cards. Staying in the Ville, throw up the L, right hand only, while the cardinal bird parachutes in like rain. In South Beach, use both hands to flash the U, and if the defense gets the ball, break out that turnover chain. In victory, celebrations arise that ignite the entire city. Wake rolls the quad, Florida State buries the sod, and Syracuse will flip the banner down at the varsity. Superfans in Chestnut Hill make sure they're seen in gold. We're together, they're more, and they sing for Boston, New Eagles, and Old. At Pitt, the fans are in tune as well, but this one is by curious design. They'll salute their team between the third and fourth quarters and sing to the tune of Sweet Caroline. And speaking of Caroline, uh, are the heels going to ring that victory bell, or will it be the Blue Devils of Durham that'll ultimately give them hell? Further down Tobacco Road at NC State, you'll find from grass to roof, they touch their thumb to their ring and middle fingers to flash the woof. For as Kipling said, the strength of the wolf is in the pack. But do they run scared when they hear that rambling wreck? That 1930s gold Ford coupe honking and blowing its horn so near? While the fans say, to hell with Georgia, and sing how they drink their whiskey clear. BC brings the tradition of O-Line U, where they teach you to fire off and block. But perhaps the most famous tradition of all is of Clemson and Howard's Rock. They call it the most exciting 25 seconds in sports. A story and sight indeed. But we've got more than 25 seconds to deliver, with all the excitement and insight you'll need. So give us your ears and we'll give you a smile, via audio rather than text. It's Chappie and the Bip on a bowl full of chips. Podcast infotainment, next. Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, whatever the hell time it is for you college football fans, because we know that there really is no time limit on our passion for college football. You are listening to A Bowl Full of Chips. I am one of your co-hosts, Mr. Chappie, and I am joined as always by my brother from the same mother, Bip. Bip, how the heck are you? Not too bad, Chappie. Um, 
just getting uh, rolling into some some nice uh, ACC traditions here. Looking forward to that coming off of our SEC traditions. And once again, pleasantly surprised by some of the, the cool uh, nuances of different campuses uh, around the country. So looking forward to getting into that tonight. Yep. The good old ACK, as it is unpopularly called. In fact, I think I may be <laughs> the first one to ever call it that. We can <laughs> start a new last. tradition here, Bip. <laughs> so we here at Bowl Full of Chips, we love to bring football closer to you all. We want to thank you for listening first and foremost. Bip and I have been doing this for about a couple months now and things have gotten better. Things are getting uh, back in or getting into that groove that we, we wanted to hit. And of course, that's all made possible by the interactions with you guys on Twitter and with you guys listening and downloading and subscribing. So for those who may be just tuning in right now, Bip, tell them where they can find you on Twitter. They can find me at BFC Bip. And how about you, Chappie? I am at champion underscore lit. And Bip and I, in addition to talking about things or rehashing things that we mentioned on this podcast, that's really just a, a minor section of what we cover out in the Twitter universe. We, we like to expand well beyond. We keep fresh with the news and notes and all the comings and goings with college football. So we're going to get into those news and notes here in just a minute. But we also want to remind you that here on Bowlful of Chips, we love college football, obviously. We love to laugh. <laughs> and, Biff, we love The Office, don't we? Absolutely. One of the uh, all-time greats, and it's one of those shows that, at least for me and my wife, we can watch it at any point. And I'm not or overestimating when I say I think we've completed the show at least 30 times in completion. I was just going to ask you that. That was on the tip of my tongue. How many times have you gone through every episode? I would say that myself, the wife and I, we, we enjoy it together. That's kind of our, our go-to when, when we need background noise or when we need comic relief. Oh, yeah. Oftentimes, we like, to, you know, we like to dabble into true crime dramas or, or some things that get a little heavy and serious. We're big into horror movies. But then when we want to kind of put our minds at ease before going to bed, we will typically turn on the office. And yeah, I would say without overestimation, it is right at around 30 or so. And uh, for those who know Bip and I, or if we ever come into contact, chances are we're going to throw out a, an office line here or there. So what were some of the, the things that left you smiling and satisfied, Bip, with the office? <laughs> um, I, I got to love, uh, love me some Creed. Um, yes, sir. Anytime he was he was on, he was he. They gave you just enough to where it wasn't oversaturation, but man, it was it was always um, enjoyable when he was on with his uh, his quick one liners. And didn't I mean Creed Bratton? For those who are not familiar, that is his actual name, and that's kind of one of the cool nuances about the office. Is a lot of those characters use their same stage names. So um, and and. As many of you can probably understand, that's really the only claim to fame that most of them have, aside from John Krasinski and Jenna Fisher and obviously Steve Carell. But um, don't you get the feeling, Bip, that that is truly who Creed Bratton is in real life? I, I have to think so. And I, I always wonder how he came about auditioning for that role um, and would love to hear the backstory of that as to, you know, 
did he kind of just stumble upon the set and <laughs> you know sit right. down in the, in the in the desk chair accidentally or you know <laughs> w- w- was he picked out from a crowd based off of uh, connections he had or you know because he seems like a really funny guy but like you mentioned a lot of people uh, a lot of uh, actors from the show this is either their first or their only thing that they've ever done so um yeah. like hearing those backstories and, and I've heard a few of the, of the more main characters, but minor characters like Creed and, uh, um, you know, Angela, Angela and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'd love to hear some of the backstories on them. Right. Um, I know that, you know, sometimes as we all do, I, I, I get caught in the YouTube rabbit hole and there are some audition tapes on the office. That's pretty interesting to see. And it's also, I think even more interesting to see some of the other people who audition for some of those roles. And you look back now and obviously everything happens for a reason, but to, to see some of the Hollywood people who maybe were bigger name that auditioned for the roles of Dwight and Jim and even Michael Scott, you look back and you're like, good God, I'm, I'm glad that they didn't earn it because I just couldn't see the same dynamic. I couldn't see the same positive flow from some of those people who are B and maybe even a list actors, whether it be on TV series or in movies. So, yeah, uh, I thought I had seen that uh, Seth Rogen was a finalist for yep. Jim's role. Yeah, <laughs> I, I yeah, similar to you. I just can't picture him giving the the awkward glances and it would be more so what he's done in every movie and have that that gravelly <laughs> laugh the whole time yeah maybe if they had like uh somehow incorporated a muppet on the show then yeah. seth rogan would have been great but i mean nothing against seth rogan he's good in just about anything he's oh doing, yeah but yeah they they definitely did themselves a service by going with john krasinski instead right right um and the only person who may have come even in the same stratosphere as Michael Scott was Bob Odenkirk, who I know auditioned for the role. And he actually made right. a later appearance when they were trying to find a replacement for Michael. And Yeah, uh, and he did, a, he did an outstanding job of kind of just mimicking exactly who Michael Scott was yeah. in that other uh, office role that he had. So I would be interested to see how similar the the roles would have played out if if Odenkirk hadn't seen the role that Steve Carell played you know how right. similar would those two have been not knowing how Steve Carell played it out because it's easy to mimic someone after you see them five six seasons in yeah. but if you're doing it completely from from scratch that, that would be a curiosity of mine now I did see that they were thinking about bringing the office back and most of the cast minus Steve Carell said that they would be on board and they would be a go for at least one season and, and try it out. So if that actually does happen, I I don't I'm a believer that it will never be the same without Michael Gary Scott Agreed. played by Steve Carell, but if they somehow could incorporate Bob Odenkirk in a different role, not playing Michael Scott or anyone like him, but playing a different role, like maybe he's um, a washed up salesman who comes and joins the team and he's kind of the comic relief. Although um, I don't want him to detract from the greatness that is better call Saul. Bip and I big right. Saul fans. So <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I know that uh, when that show was in its prime before the days of DVR, I made it a point to, videotape uh and i'm dating myself here a little bit and then eventually bip turned me on into uh, audio or uh, video recording via dvd the every uh, <laughs> show from the series and the only two dates that i ever missed live 
were the births of both of my daughters. Ironically, they were both born on a Thursday, and I was not able to catch the the live showing of it, either because it was right around their birth or I was so damn tired that I just couldn't pull myself to keep my eyes open for that. Well, how dare they inconvenience you like that? I know, I know. Well, <laughs> you know, fortunately, they still have just that one strike against them. So, <laughs> Well, then, then you need to make sure that they don't get married on a uh, football Saturday. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that will definitely be in the works. <laughs> right. I will tell them, I will set them straight, and I will say, if you love your daddy, you will make sure that you get <laughs> married uh, either on an opposite day or you do it during the summer before season starts. And any gentleman <laughs> caller who comes their way, unless you're pulling in, uh, 600,000 plus a year, uh, you don't have a choice in the matter. You're going to get married, uh, outside of the fall. Exactly. (laughs) So, yeah. So we, we brought up the office because set in Scranton, Pennsylvania and other offices in New York and the new England area, we thought it fit in with this ACC Atlantic coast conference, uh, geography setting. So that's where Bip and I are going today. We are going to run down some of the major traditions from both the Atlantic Division and the Coastal Division, some of the more well-known programs and some of the, not lesser known, but maybe some of the uh, programs where people, if you ask them, hey, what can you tell us about this program's traditions? And many people might draw a blank. Bip and I love to inform. We love to educate you all. And that's our aim today. So Bip, let's get into our news and notes. We've had some happenings within the last week around the college football world. What's something that came up in the news that jumped out at you this week? Well, I'm going to go with uh, maybe the most disturbing one potentially and go with Maurice Washington uh, out of Nebraska being charged with uh, child pornography and an account of revenge porn. I'm not sure if that's a technical term, but... um, (laughs) Essentially, well, it's what flashed on the headlines? That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, when I first saw this, I was I was really uh, had a sick feeling in my stomach when I saw child pornography. Not that sending a video of a fifteen year old girl is appropriate by any means, but right. I, I went to the worst way. So, uh, if there's a silver lining in this, at, at least um, we could say that. Um, yeah. But so for those yeah, so of you, it, was, it wasn't like uh minor, minor, it was, yes. you know, right yeah. on the fringe. But again, I, I, I'm totally with you that, you know, wrong is wrong, but yeah. Right. You're right. So, so for those of you unaware, uh, Washington was caught sending a, an, a sexually explicit video to his former girlfriend in sort of a, a threatening manner. Um, she was 15 at the time and she alleges that the video that was being sent was of her being sexually assaulted by two other gentlemen uh, not uh, that were not Maurice Washington himself. Um, but regardless, having it in, in his possession and sending it is going to lead to a world of uh, problems for him. Right. I don't know if Nebraska has come out and said anything disciplinary about Washington yet, but you have to figure that there's no way that he's going to remain on the team, which is a big loss to the, the um the Cornhuskers, as as a true freshman uh, last year, Washington had 455 yards on the ground and averaged 5.9 yards per carry. He also caught 24 passes for 221 yards. So big blow to the Huskers. But, um, you know, he's obviously got to get some things straightened out himself outside of football before he can even think about stepping back on the gridiron. Yeah. And as as we're well aware in today's society, that's that's a topic you don't want to give any benefit of the doubt to anybody really. And I would assume, you know, Nebraska is a very 
fine program, a fine university. I, I, I respect a lot of what Scott Frost does. And so you would imagine that they're, they're hoping that this takes its course through the justice system and hopefully it's not as bad as it's alleged against Maurice Washington. Um, but certainly while it's going on, you're looking at a, a potential sp uh, suspension. And of course, we're speculating, but um, or yeah, maybe it's just a dismissal. We've seen programs do that before where they don't want to take a chance. And so, you know, that might put Maurice Washington into the junior college ranks for a little bit. And then maybe another program will give him a second chance. Um, mm -hmm. And that's yeah, that is a blow to the Washington or to the uh, to the Nebraska Cornhuskers because they lose Divino Zigbo, who had a, uh, a great second half of the year in the Big Ten, probably one of the most underrated players in the Big Ten this year. And so Mo Washington was seen as this versatile back out of the backfield. Um, and, and now that's a big question mark. But fortunately, they did get Dedrick Mills, who's a transfer from Georgia Tech, played at junior college last year and signed with the Cornhuskers. That was a big get for them in the yeah. first round of recruiting. So, you know, maybe that opens a door for him. And, you know, he did some good things down with the Ramblin' Wreck, who we'll talk about today. So uh, silver lining for him as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think also the big news is Ole Miss. The NCAA uh, ruled that they need to vacate 33 wins from when they were under the Hugh Freeze regime. And um, what do you think, Bip? Is that, is that something that should have been done? Uh, is it fair to the, the players that were on the team that maybe didn't have anything to do with it? Um, is this the right decision, or do you think that penalties should have been dealt out elsewhere? Well, this actually dates back to 2010, so some of the wins were vacated from the Houston Nut era as well. Oh, okay, okay. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's justified. I mean, anytime that you have anything enough to suspend the program for what they did, which the uh, they were found wrongdoing of recruiting infractions, I believe some academic stuff. Yeah, and. and this was one of those ones that you could kind of see from a mile away. You know, they, their, their class of 2013, I think it was the recruiting class. They pull in three of the five top guy or three of the top guys um, in the entire country, Laquan Treadwell, Robert Kimdiche and Laramie Tunsil. And you're wondering, you know, sitting there as a fan thinking, how did they pull in these three, not only five stars, but I think each of them may have been the top-rated uh, position player at their respective positions, too. Right. And, you know, you, you could say Hugh Freeze is a heck of a recruiter, but when Ole Miss is a, a good, not great recruiting team in mm -hmm. its, its history, you have to scratch your head and wonder, not only that, but none of those guys are from the state of Mississippi. Uh, Treadwell being from Illinois, of all places, Tunsil yeah. from Florida, and Kim DJ from Georgia. Now, Kim DJ's brother played uh, at Ole Miss at mm -hmm. the time that he committed. So there's one potential factor, but I mean, there's plenty of instances to where he had, he was the number one player in the country and it, it, there's gotta be something at play potentially um, as to how he landed at Ole Miss. So I wasn't surprised by Ole Miss getting popped for this. And right. I think it's totally justified to take away the wins because you know, similarly to, to teams that have academic dishonesty that get wins vacated for something as, and I'm going to put this in, in air quotes, as light as cheating for their, their academic grades. Right. Um, you know, something like this where, where the, the entire institution is involved of looking the other way or paying players or, or whatever they were found guilty of yeah. is, is definitely something that 
justified at least taking their wins away. Do you think that there should be any penalty for the coach when they land a future job? Because my question is, Hugh Freeze uh, was let go, and it wasn't just because of this. There were a few things that were kind of some skeletons in his closet, and now he's the head coach at Liberty. Do you think that um, it the appearances that he gets off this a lot lighter than the university and the football program, and now, um, you know, like I said, some of those players who were not uh, involved in any of that, but now they're enveloped in some of these sanctions and some of these, you know, forfeiture of wins. And I, and I know it just goes down on paper, you know, I mean, if you were on the team, you could always say, well, we beat this Mm -hmm. team, we beat that team, but just, uh, you know, technically speaking in a record book, it doesn't exist or it's got an asterisk next to it. But do you think that Hugh Freeze or any coach for that matter should have some sort of sanctions that follow them uh, levied by the NCAA if they go to another institution. Maybe not that that institution um, can't play in postseason or something like that, but maybe they, you know, when you hire a coach who has been involved in some of that fraud, that maybe automatically they lose some of their scholarship offers, and that makes some of these universities think twice about what these coaches are doing, because ultimately we have to get back to the idea of accountability and responsibility that these coaches have for their institutions. You're making multi-million dollars a year. And so with that comes a lot of responsibility and you can't just skirt out of it and say, well, they fired me or I decided to resign, but I'm going to pick up and get my second chance here while everybody else is kind of left in the wake. What do you think about that, Bip? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if a player commits something that was heinous enough or or serious enough to warrant a suspension and they transfer, most of the time, if not all of the time, that player still has to serve their suspension at their new school. So similarly, the coach should be suspended or they should have a loss of scholarships or maybe the NCAA can sanction and say how much a coach can earn at his next position. Right. And and you could say that, well, they have the stigma following with them. They're going to have a hard enough time trying to find a job because they have all this, you know, backing them up. But yeah. Oh, well, as we know, as we know, winning cures all. And all you have to do is to just land at the right place and the right opportunity making your potential millions of dollars and uh, things will be forgotten quickly if you're successful. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that guys don't deserve a second chance, but I agree with you. Maybe somehow uh, a, a committee decides what was the amount of damage that they still need to carry with them. And yeah, in a situation like uh, a coach where, who goes to a different university, the NCAA says, okay, you guys can negotiate your contract but we are entitled to take a portion of this and either they give it back to the university that you screwed over or it goes to the NCAA or it goes towards some sort of scholarship fund, you know, put it to to good use. But at the same time, letting these guys know and letting future institutions know that if you're going to take a chance on this guy, part of it, you know, there's going to be some baggage that comes with that. And I agree. Um, You know, let's say, and again, I'm using Hugh Freeze as, as this example, but, um, if, if Liberty starts going, um, you know, and, and running the tables and winning and winning and winning and Hugh mm-hmm. Freeze decides to stay here for four or five years, um, then it kind of works itself out and, and he has earned himself a, a clean slate. But in that meantime, you know, I, I don't think that it's right that one university that you used to be at, that you were part of some of the problems has to suffer the brunt and all that you can say as well. Yeah, I used to be there, but I'm not there anymore. I'm, I'm in a new place and, and all is forgotten. 
Yeah, because it seems like if the university already gets rid of the coach and the athletic director and whoever else was tied with it, they kind of seem to have already done their penance. Um, so sure. if the if the new coach doesn't have to face those penalties, then maybe the university doesn't if they get rid of the guy that was responsible for the problem in the first place. Yeah, exactly. But. Well, we've got one more news of note that um, is, is good for people out in Pullman, Washington. The NCAA decided to allow eligibility, immediate eligibility, and one more year of play for Eastern Washington transfer quarterback Gabe Gubrud, who was a two-time Walter Payton finalist and now becomes another trigger man for Mike Leach out there in the Palouse. Um, some stats on him. He threw for over 10,000 yards at Eastern Washington, who is known to be a pass-happy offense, over 80 touchdowns in his career. Now, I heard somebody bring up a good point. The last Eastern Washington quarterback, um, uh, Damon Adams, I believe his name was, transferred to Oregon and didn't really fizzle out, but he was kind of a, a more of a diminutive guy. He was more of that kind of in the Kyler Murray mold where he had a good arm and had a good view of the offense, but was a little bit more dangerous with his wheels and was kind of that versatile quarterback. Gubra, by most accounts, is, is going to be a guy who's going to fit that Mike Leach air raid mold, and he's just going to know where the right passes are going to go, and he's going to make those completions, and that's going to keep that Washington State offense going. So is that a good move, Bip, or do you think that uh, Washington State uh, should still open up their quarterback competition and, and maybe look at some of the um, the recruits that they brought in? At this point, I don't, I don't question Mike Leach at all. Uh, for any quarterback that he brings in, and yeah. if he thinks that if he thinks that Gubrud is the is the guy, then I'm not going to question him until I see otherwise. Um, interestingly, he threw for over 5,000 yards in 2016, and also ran for over 600 in that year. So, yeah, I think he's got the ability, and I think he's got the right coaching, and I think he's got the right offense. I th so, I, I don't see. A major drop off, but again, you're going into the wild unknown of him jumping up from the FCS to the FBS and starting completely new with a group of receivers and an offense that he's never been a part of. So while while there's nothing set in stone for how good he can be or how how good he might not be, um, I'll give Mike Mike uh, Leach the benefit of the doubt on this one. I think it's a good call there, Bip. I think that's something that is, you know, we he's proven. And can I just say, I'm I loved watching Minshew play, but I'm glad to be done with the the damn mustache thing. Mustache. I mean, yeah, yeah. that <laughs> that ran its course. And you know, there are dead horses all over the country who are saying, "Really, we got to hear about that again." <laughs> yeah, and that's for sure going to be replaced with Trevor Lawrence's hair uh, until he gets it cut or gets drafted. So we we have that to look forward to for the next two years. Now that Minshew's uh, moved on to greener pastures, right? <laughs> well, we're gonna we're gonna take a quick break here for a sponsor, and Bip and I will be right back. Hey, Boston, answer this query for me. You ever get the urge to work out, but you needed a little jolt? That's why I invented Boston Farmer's Jaga Laga. It'll give you the pep you need to peak, but it'll also give you enough buzz to make your jaga breeze. So when you got a case of the runs, grab a case of Boston Farmer's Jaga Laga. Welcome back here to Bowl Full of Chips. We pride ourselves in being the college football podcast that gives you more than the mainstream podcasts do. We'll throw more details at you and back our claims with research and perspective as well. 
we don't have any corporate agenda. There's no pen pushers. There's no political agenda. We're going to say what's on our mind and try to be objectively subjective. So we'll give you our opinions and our thoughts, but we're also going to try and play on both sides of the fence, so to speak. So that way everybody is represented, but the truth will come out and, and great opinions will, will follow. We'll try to keep the pounds of praise balanced with the punishing punches for all teams, and you'll find that we're both complimentary and critical wherever and whenever necessary. So, Bip, no opinions today aside from what we think about these ACC football traditions. Now, one of the best things about college football, whether you're watching on TV or whether you're enjoying live in person, is the the different and unique traditions and the customs and the culture that goes with each college football program and what they do and what we love to see and and what makes it great and separates it from the corporate ho-hum NFL game that we see sometimes. So, Bip, let's start with you. We're going to go in kind of a back and forth affair here, and Bip's going to start off with telling us about uh, the top team from the ACC Atlantic Division. So, Bip, who starts us off on this role today? Well, got to start with the national champion, uh, Clemson Tigers. Um, like I mentioned, uh, yeah, yeah, usually. Uh, like I said, the their nickname is the Tigers, and that comes from, in 1896, their coach, Walter Merritt Riggs, who later became the university president, brought the name over from his alma mater, Auburn. So... Uh, for all you Tiger fans out there from Auburn, you can uh, take solace in the fact that your uh, nickname was ripped off by Clemson. So <laughs> um, the original mascot was actually called the Southern Gentleman, and it was a student dressed in a purple suit with a top hat and a cane. So um, got to think that the Tiger mascot's a little more ferocious. So good pick by uh, Mr. Riggs. Uh, some of the traditions of Clemson, they're actually coached by John Heisman. Yes, the John Heisman for four years. Didn't know that. Yes, and the Bruce Dickinson. <laughs> <laughs> the their their two biggest traditions kind of go hand in hand. So I'm gonna go uh, with the first one uh, of Howard's Rock. Now this one, all Clemson fans, I'm sure are. are well aware of, but in the 1960s, then coach Frank Howard was given this rock by his friend saying, here's a rock from Death Valley, California to Death Valley, South Carolina. So Howard actually used the, used the rock as a doorstop for a few years. And one day when he was cleaning up his office, he asked one of the directors of the uh, Clemson athletic fundraising club and said, take this rock and throw it over the fence or out in the ditch, do something with it, but get it out of my office. So that individual placed it on a pedestal at the top of the east end zone um, and at the top of the hill where the team runs down to enter the field for the games. The the first game that this happened, they beat their rival Virginia. So Howard seized the moment of the potential motivation that the Rock could provide and said, give me 110% or get your filthy hands off my Rock. (laughs) <laughs> and from then on, it's been part of the one of the biggest traditions of Clemson football history, uh, running down the hill during each home game. And the 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 Clemson ROTC actually protects the rock for 24 hours prior to every home game against South Carolina. As Saw one that. year, they uh, a couple guys got in and vandalized the rock. So and, and when I say they protect it, the video that I was shown a uh, couple automatic rifles were in hands of the ROTC members. So they mean business when they're protecting it. So 
And so quite and literally, meant- the uh, the South Carolina students were acting like a couple of game cocks, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that ties into running down the hill. And this has been called the most exciting 25 seconds in college football. The Clemson football players run out onto the field before every home game uh, after gathering around Howard's Rock, which is if you haven't seen it before, it's really one of the cooler things to see uh, of one of the pregame rituals of, of any team in the country. So the cannons blast and the band starts playing Tiger Rag and the players make their way down the hill and onto the field. And this originally started out of necessity as the team dressed across the street at Fike Fieldhouse and ran from there to the gate and down the hill onto the field. Today, they get dressed on the west side of the stadium. They get bussed to the east side and they gather around Howard's Rock and still do the uh, traditional run down the hill. Couple, so Frank uh, Howard was kind of like the original Charlie Brown. I go to rock, <laughs> which, <laughs> yeah, by the right. way, uh, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, one guy giving another guy a gift, you know, that's that's kind of weird, as as they mentioned in the other guys. But uh, a right. rock, really? I mean, yeah. <laughs> no significance. Like, uh, it's almost as if uh, Frank Howard's buddy was like, oh, crap, I forgot to get you something. Uh, yeah, here's a rock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks. I'll, I'll get you something. Uh, one of my one of the garbage things from my garden, too. <laughs> right. So the the. The saying that Clemson has is um, they have what's called the Clemson cadence count. And so, and I I know I've heard this before, but I'm probably not going to do it justice, but it it goes C-L-E-M-S-O-N-T-I-G-E-R-S, fight tigers, fight tigers, fight, fight, fight. And they'll say that throughout the entire game and is is one of the most recognizable Clemson chants uh, during the the football game. So that was, that was damn good, Bip. Well, thank I, you. I appreciate it. I, I didn't get the uh, I didn't get the Southern draw and I may not have gotten the uh, the the rhythm with it, but I try. Dare I say you rocked that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice, sir. Very nice. <laughs> so swinging it over your way, who's your team that you're going to lead off with? Well, you referenced their old rival in the original ACC conference, which started in the 1950s. I'm going to go with the Virginia Cavaliers, whose primary saying is wahoo So that lends the, the segue over to, they have a couple of nicknames. They're one of the few universities that have multiple nicknames. So most notably, the media refers to them as the Cavaliers. That's kind of the official nickname and mascot for the University of Virginia, but students and Virginia fans affectionately refer to them as the Wahoos or just the Who's. And so what that comes from is for unknown reasons, after looking through various sources, nobody really knows where the term Wahoo comes from. One theory is that um, the uh, one of their former opponents referred to their team as uh, fighting like a bunch of Wahoos, uh, I think making reference to uh, a group of savages or a group of, of wily uh, opponents. But there's also the theory that the students of the University of Virginia were known for drinking like a Wahoo fish, which I just learned was a thing today. Um, <laughs> so um, the what they do is they have a, a Cavalier mascot uh, nicknamed Cavman who will ride in and lead the team out on the field on a galloping horse. Now, those are just some of the the pregame rituals. I think some of the, the coolest thing about the University of Virginia is the way that they dress, their attire for the games. They don't like to be in just the typical school colors and a sea of orange. They like to 
dress with the guys in ties and the girls in pearls. It shows and reflects the class of the southern uh, states and uh, the elegance and the wealth that the state of Virginia once had and, and still does in, in many parts. So um, a cool new tradition that they started when Bronco Mendenhall took over there is something called breaking the rock. And so what they do is they'll take a small rock. So staying on that rock theme, yep. they'll take a, a small rock and they'll put the opponent's name. They'll paint it on there or they'll, they'll decorate it. And they'll have that in their locker room all week long. And so after beating that opponent, hopefully they'll pick a, a selected player, maybe a player of the game to take a sledgehammer and smash the rock and break it, symbolizing that the, the Wahoos have broken the spirit and have broken the, the cohesion and the, in the potential victory for their opponents. So that's really the University of Virginia, some of their, their main traditions. So this year for their bowl game, did they have a cock rock? <laughs> it could have been, but that, that may have caused some damage that uh, uh, you didn't want to get down to. So, well, well, whatever they did, it worked as they uh, beat South Carolina 28 <laughs> nothing. Yeah, uh, South Carolina was, uh, they, they were a little late showing up to that game. And then by the time they, did, they got things going, the lights were turned off there in, in uh, right, Florida. Right. So. <laughs> so, going back over to you, um, how can you yep. top the University of Virginia? Well, sticking with uh, multiple nicknames, I'm going to go with the NC State Wolfpack. Now, they don't really have any of those other nicknames anymore, but before they were called the Wolfpack, they were known as the Aggies, the Tex, the Red Terrors, and the ever-ferocious, the Farmers. Woo! Now, in 1921... That's just as bad as the Praying Colonels. <laughs> almost. They <laughs> adopted the Wolfpack when an unhappy fan described the behavior of some of their football players as... An unruly or unruly as a pack of wolves. So hmm. that wet blanket uh, that <laughs> was complaining about these football players actually did the university a, a great service, getting them to switch over to the wolf pack. <laughs> so they're too the, wild. <laughs> <laughs> the school colors were originally pink and blue for NC State, Ooh. and then it was changed to maybe worse, brown and white. <laughs> so. So the, the university had the students take a poll, which I don't know why most universities didn't do that from the beginning, but uh, it was then decided that the color should be red and white. So uh, during the national anthem, the crowd emphasizes the red in the Rockets' red glare. And at the end, they also changed the lyrics to the home of the wolf pack, which was pretty cool. Yeah. Saying that they have is the um, the Wolfpack chant, where one side of the stadium yells "Wolf" and the other side yells back "Pack" to get that back and forth going. And the most of the fans can be seen holding up the sign of the wolf, which is where you touch your middle and ring fingers to your thumb while holding up your index and pinky fingers to form the shape of a wolf. So very nice. Yep, and uh, a, a nice uh, throwback and, and homage to the uh, the NWO Wolfpack for any of you uh, WCW fans from back in the day. <laughs> yep, and then the the later famed uh, Wolfpack from the great movie The Hangover. Absolutely. <laughs> so speaking of hangovers, which uh, fan base is going to be? Uh, are you going to be mentioning that could be suffering for, from some uh, hangovers on Saturday, Chappie? Well, we'll stick down Tobacco Road and go to the University of North Carolina. So one might think with 
North Carolina State and then North Carolina, they might be two of the bigger rivals. As most people know, North Carolina actually has a bigger rival than the Wolfpack. But the Tar Heels, uh, interesting nickname. Now, this was one that always, for the longest time, I, I kind of wondered where it came from. And I had some thoughts and theories, and one of them was true. North Carolina used to be a, a big producer of naval supplies for the United States military. And um, working with with tar as they were uh, manufacturing the the necessary goods, oftentimes the the workers were working barefoot out in the warm, muggy climate of North Carolina. And so walking around in some of the fields and factories, they would often get tar all over their feet and their heels and it would stick. Uh, but probably a more uh, elegant, reasoning for the Tar Heel nickname comes from during the Civil War, the the state of North Carolina was known for having troops that, quote, stuck to their ranks like they had tar on their heels. And so from there, the term Tar Heel gained popularity. And that seemed to be a, a much prouder reason for that nickname. Now, they do have a live mascot that's named Ramses, and it's a, a horned dorset sheep where a couple of Sheep herders are are specifically raising this particular ram, and and they'll paint his horns Carolina blue before every game. And while they say that he's kind of docile during the week, when it gets to be Saturday, he gets amped up, and and he's kind of feisty, and he's hard to manage and control. And a lot of that is the spirit and the passion that comes from the stands in Keenan Stadium, which, by the way, a side note, is one of the more beautiful settings in college football. It sets beneath some towering pines, and under that Carolina blue sky, it is one of the more breathtaking views in college football. Unfortunately, the football team hasn't been able to match that beauty on the field just yet, but we'll see what happens with Coach Mac Brown getting there. That's right. Now, Ramsey's was originated from a North Carolina cheerleader named Vic Huggins, began this tradition in 1924 when he decided that the North Carolina football team needed an animal mascot similar to NC State's Wolf or Georgia's Bulldog. So the idea for using a ram came from the nickname for their star fullback, Jack Merritt, who is known as the Battering Ram. So if you're wondering how do you equate a Tar Heel with a ram, it was really a mascot that was set to pay tribute to their star fullback, and it became so popular that they decided to keep it all throughout these almost 100 years. And it's funny, he he obtained it for $25 from a a ranch in Texas, and they named him Ramses. traditions that they have at North Carolina is what they call fourth quarter hype. And so as the fourth quarter begins, as most programs do, they have some sort of ceremony in between the third and fourth quarters where they hold up four fingers and blaring in the PA speakers is a mixture of ACDC's Hell's Bells and Roy Jones Jr.'s Can't Be Touched, which is a uh, a more upbeat hip hop tune. And everybody in the stands moves their arms back and forth, almost like a Seminole chop, uh, signifying the end for their opposition. So it's it's something to create a level of intimidation. And then the video board shows highlights of the team. And it's, uh, it's down in the uh, tobacco country. It rivals jump around out in Madison, Wisconsin, although Badger fans might take offense to that. And one of the cool things about being a North Carolina Tar Heel is it's expected that after you say whatever it is that you're saying to the public or uh, to the media, you end with, and I'm a Tar Heel. So former greats like Julius Peppers, 
Michael Jordan on the basketball scene, they're known for saying things and then ending it with, and I'm a Tar Heel. But even as a fan or as an alumni yourself, you're expected to follow your sentence with, and I'm a Tar Heel, reminding everybody that this is where you came from and you're proud of it. So staying on Tobacco Road, Bip, what about the Wake Forest Demon Deacons? What can you tell us about the, the gold and black over there? Yeah, so nicknamed the Demon Deacons, and originally their their kind of mascot was uh, a tiger, and that was dating back all the way to when it was called Wake Forest College, but the tiger fell out of favor, and some called the team the Baptist, while others referred to them as the Old Golden Black. After Hank Garrity was hired for both the basketball and football head coaching positions, both teams started to play markedly better. This was noticed by Mayon Parker, who is editor of the school newspaper, and noted that the athletes had a newfound devilish play and coined the term uh, Demon Deacon. So both Parker and Garrity would would use that term, the, the Demon Deacons, quite frequently, and it just stuck from there. So the the mascot actually dates back to one of the students who kind of was sitting around and wondering what the mascot would look like and so he came up with the the look of the the top hat and the outfit that uh you know a a southern deacon would wear and so it kind of just stemmed from that and similar to some of the other mascots it's kind of one of those to where um a, a different student will reprise the role of the mascot and there's been plenty of stories of crazy things that um previous mascots have done so if you have any extra time and you want to look that up it was pretty cool to to read but would take too long to get into on here but one of the things that the mascot has done recently is you'll see it in um some games riding in on a motorcycle onto the field as it leads the team out into uh playing at, at home yeah so that's one of the cool things that they have on it one of the other really well-known traditions at Wake Forest is called rolling the quad. So after a big victory, students will celebrate by toilet papering the trees and, and just about everything else within the quad. So for all you SEC fans out there, it's pretty similar to, to Toomer's corner of uh, the look of it afterwards. But those are two of the coolest traditions that, that I find is it just looks awesome. And it's just one of those fun not overly destructive ways to celebrate a victory after you uh, come away with a big one. We're going streaking. We're going rolling the quad (laughs) through the gymnasium. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So at Wake Forest, the fans will um, cheer during the game by alternating uh, one section will yell wake and the other section will yell forest. So not not some of the most original cheers, but um, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the one that they that they do most frequently throughout the games. It makes so, sense. We'll we'll give them that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So so after following the uh, the Demon Deacons, Chappie, who you got next uh, coming out of your side of the bracket in the ACC? Well, we'll we'll f- uh, finish up Tobacco Road with the Duke Blue Devils and. Uh, truth be told, I was a little bit disappointed that I didn't see more football traditions for the Blue Devils. A lot of it was basketball stuff, but 
The Blue Devil's nickname comes from during World War One. There was a group of French soldiers that were nicknamed the Blue Devils, uh, and they were decked out in their blue uniform and long flowing cape, much like the Blue Devil mascot on the sidelines is is dressed as. And they also were known for having the pointed facial hair features that you'll see in the Blue Devil logo and and their. Uh, costume mascot on the sidelines. So that's kind of the tradition behind that Blue Devil nickname. Um, they like their tailgating in Blue Devil Alley, but which college doesn't like tailgating? Um, right. the, probably the, the, the coolest tradition that they have, they share with the University of North Carolina, who is their biggest rival, regardless of what NC State might say or what Wake Forest might say. And so the the victory bell is something that players from both teams strive for for 365 days out of the year. And, and it's obviously the game is circled in the calendar. And so the winner obviously gets this victory bell and they'll race over to get it out of its uh, location and they'll turn the crank and they'll ring that ring that bell as loud as they can get it and there's cheers and there's chants and and the goosebumps are popping and the adrenaline's flowing and then the cool thing is they get to take it and either on the field but typically in their locker room they will spray paint it their color so if duke wins they paint it that royal blue and in a way that they feel that the victory bell should always be painted and then conversely if they lose to the tar heels then the other side gets to paint it their carolina blue so um, That's cool. Yeah, and it kind of marks a symbol of mastery over your rival, and it was originated by the head cheerleaders for both teams at Duke and North Carolina back in 1948 who decided that, you know, these games are getting big. We should be able to play for something. There are other games that have trophies. And in 1948, that was about uh, 40 or 50 years after some other longstanding trophies had already been originated, and they felt that they wanted to have their own mark for such a rivalry. So that's the Duke Blue Devils. Um, one other note is uh, there was one Rose Bowl game back in um, the early 19th century, or I'm sorry, early 20th century, where the Rose Bowl had to be played over in Duke's Wallace Wade Stadium, which is kind of a cool claim to fame for, for Dukies down there in Durham. Okay, that's nice. Um, well, I'm going to stick with uh, another basketball school for our football chat here. Go with the uh, Louisville Cardinals. Now, the Cardinals are named this um, because of the Northern Cardinal, which is the state bird of Kentucky. So um, Louis is their their mascot, Louis the Louis the Cardinal. Louis the and <laughs> one of the cool things that that he will often do is skydive into Cardinal Stadium during home football games. Oh, nice! I couldn't quite get a uh, an understanding as to whether it was every game or just the majority of them, but definitely does it on a regular basis. And due to the school's location near train tracks, there's a, a whistle that blares every time Louisville scores during home games. Hmm. And before the game starts, the players actually gather around the Johnny United statue and all touch the statue for good luck as O Fortuna plays in the uh, over the loudspeaker. So that's one of the the pump up moments for both the crowd and the players. During the games, the cards will uh, have a chant that goes C A R D S go, and during that the fans will try to make the letters as if they're doing YMCA uh, with their arms and, and bodies to form the C-A-R-D-S. Hmm. Additionally, they have a hand gesture in which they'll put up their uh, index and middle finger uh, straight up into the air and their thumb out to create the L shape. 
but it's important that you only do this with your right hand as you will be called out from Louisville fans and alumni if you try doing it with your left. And I'm pretty sure that Louisville fans put down their index finger and just kept up the middle one for Brian Van Gorder and uh, Bobby <laughs> Petrino this past season. Yeah, or they just took their hands and put them over their eyes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That might be better. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, that wraps up the Louisville Cardinals. Um, Chappie, who you got next? Well, um, kind of sticking in that basketball theme, uh, the University of Miami has been pretty good on the hardwood, but we know that they've been pretty darn dominant for most of our lifetime on the gridiron safer maybe last year but we're going to talk about the U and first of all the Hurricanes nickname as many people can associate Miami and Southern Florida being prime hurricane territory there was some debate about you know university officials didn't necessarily want such a negative uh, happening to be associated with their university and with their sports teams but then uh cooler minds and better minds got together and thought, well, um, it's it's really kind of an intimidation factor, and we want to be known as a team that can sweep our opponents away just like this devastating storm did. And somebody brought up a great point, and they said, does anybody think Chicago is overrun by bears just because the town has a football team by that name? Um, <laughs> originally, they, the university officials wanted to go with local uh, flowers or animals to name the team after, but the players said that we wouldn't stand for it. We want something that's going to give us uh, a psychological ed and, edge, and so Hurricanes stuck with that. So they're almost the lilies or the daisies or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever yeah. flower grows down in Miami. Right. Football may have folded a long time ago if that were the case. <laughs> uh, Miami, uh, again, known as the U, and, and their famous hand gesture is taking both hands up and, and touching your the tips of your thumbs and raising all four fingers to indicate um, a U shape on the inside with a little bit wider edges. Uh, Miami is probably most famous currently or recently for starting the turnover prop and the sideline props, which has been well documented on ESPN's College Game Day. But they were the Ugh. ones that started the original turnover chain, which even makes Flava Flav kind of scratch his head and think that that might be a little gaudy. <laughs> um, but it is a, a big gold chain that's adorned when the Miami defense creates a turnover and takeaway. And fortunately, they've been able to back it up. It wasn't something that they just did for one year. Uh, Manny Diaz and his defense has done a really great job at at creating those turnovers and, and really getting use out of that chain as, as sickening as it is to everybody who's not a Miami fan. Um, they're, they're also famous for running through the hurricane smoke as the players enter the field. And it really became uh, one of the earliest and, and probably the coolest player entrance uh, motifs, and now it's become popularized where almost every team has some sort of fireworks or explosion or running through a tunnel, or like you had mentioned, riding out on a chopper or uh, being let out on a horse or, or something cool like that. But the hurricanes run through that hurricane smoke that you kind of see when, when things are about to go down with Mother Nature down in, in southern Florida. After touchdowns, they, they like to fire Touchdown Tommy, which is a cannon that's manned by the Sigma Chi fraternity. It's a big honor, and it's something that they take a lot of pride in down there. So when um, when, they, when the team scores, and the cannon's not that big, but it does pack a mighty punch down in the, in the end zone. So um, 
Now the the color scheme I thought was pretty interesting, and I and I guess I just overlooked it. They are green, orange, and white to represent the Florida orange tree. So obviously the orange fruit, the mm. the green foliage, and then the white blossoms. So um, I think it's kind of a cool color scheme, if nothing else, and and um, a pretty obvious uh, reasoning for it as well. So yeah, for sure. So what are you going to combat with there, Bip, over in the Atlantic? Well, I'm going to stick with uh, smothering defense and go with the Boston College Eagles. Okay. Now, they are called the Eagles after uh, Father McLaughlin was a uh, uh, reverend or, or um, religious figure at the university, was incensed by a Boston newspaper that showed a cartoon of the BC track team in where a cat was looking a plate clean of its opponents and said the college, uh, Father McLaughlin said that the college needed to adopt a mascot of their own. So he decided upon an eagle, which is symbolic of majesty, power, and freedom. So he single-handedly came up with that for the university. A couple traditions that they have, uh, the Boston College superfans. Now, this is relatively recent, or at least within our lifetimes it started. Uh, these are shirts that are worn by the student section, and it, and it all started by two Boston College students in 1997, where they came up with the thought that the student section or the fans in general just need to be more unified. So they created a couple of plain shirts that said Boston College Superfans, started selling them, and it just took off like wildfire. And so now the entire student section can be seen with the vast majority of them wearing these shirts at uh, home football games. The yep. four Boston fight song plays after every score uh, during their home games. And they have a, a saying after each first down that where the band plays a bit of the fight song and the students yell Eagles first down and they make the first down arm motion. Nice. And I noticed so. too on the, on the back of those um, super fan shirts, it says together we are more, which I think is kind of a cool short and sweet saying, but um, yeah, I thought that that was a really neat story that two students kind of uh, took that upon themselves to create this new tradition and something that if you ever watch some of those games, I mean, almost everybody's wearing them. And, and I saw that they said that uh, people were literally breaking into their apartment to get their hands on some of those shirts because they had been all sold out at the, at the bookstore. So that's right. gotta, that's yeah. gotta be a, a sweet feeling to know that you, you had a hand in that. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of inconvenient at the time, but then <laughs> one of those moments of, huh, we created something really cool here. <laughs> right. Right. So well, that does it for the Eagles Chappie who you got going up next. Well, one of the rivals of the Boston college Eagles dating back to their days in the big East is the Virginia tech Hokies. Now, Virginia Tech was formerly known as VPI, which stood for the Virginia Polytechnical Institute. And the Hokie nickname and mascot has been something that has been puzzling most college football fans who didn't have the chance to dive into it. So that's what we did today, Bip. Um, the word Hokie comes from a spirit cheer that won a $5 contest prize. So the university <laughs> said, uh, we're going to award a $5 prize. And this obviously was back when $5 was worth more than what it is right now. But sure. um, the cheer goes, and and forgive me if I'm saying this out of rhythm, but hokey, 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 high, tex, tex, VPI, solar rex, solar ra, polytex, Virginia, ray, re, VPI. So really the, the first line, hokey, is where their nickname comes from. So why do they go by Hokies when they have a picture of what looks like a turkey as their mascot? Well, here's where that comes from. 
they were once called the Gobblers. And uh, save your jokes on that one. But um, <laughs> it was a nickname whose uh, origin was widely disputed. So one story says that it was talking about how student athletes would commonly gobble up their food, as most football players are known for doing. But the most popular one and probably the more realistic one is a, uh, a local resident named Floyd Mead had trained a large turkey to pull a cart at a football game back in 1913. And throughout the years, he had trained other turkeys to continue to do tricks and stunts. And so it got, got to be kind of a, a local tradition and kind of a cool thing and a novelty for Virginia Tech football games. Um, and then eventually they decided to adopt that as their mascot, known as a gobbler or the fighting gobbler. And a cool thing about that is it's really now known, they don't really call it a gobbler because that's kind of uh, sissy, but... Um, the uh, students who dress up as the costumed hokey bird, which is like a glorified big bird on steroids, um, nobody knows who that is, and they remain anonymous. You're not supposed to tell anybody, but your reveal is at commencement, graduation commencement, out in Lane Stadium. You're wow. said to wear the hokey uh bird feet underneath your cap and gown so that's how people know okay this is who it was so once you have graduated from the university that's how you reveal it so and it's said to be you know uh pretty tight-lipped and, and people honor that tradition so i thought that was pretty cool yeah it is um most people know that the best tradition about Virginia Tech and maybe one of the coolest traditions in all of college football is the entrance of Enter Sandman, played by Metallica, where the team will come out um, and they'll touch the hokey stone and um, the lights go out and Metallica gives a little intro on the uh, big screen and, and bit my, my goosebumps are going right now. Uh, people will oh, take yeah. out their lighters, their uh, their cell phone lights, and all of a sudden you hear the bass and the thumping and bum 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 bum, and everybody starts jumping, and then the the electric guitar gets going. Uh, the place is just electric, and uh, I encourage you if you haven't looked at it yet, Google that entrance video on YouTube. There's a good one of Chris Fowler who I thought he was about to be brought to tears uh, when he saw it, and and just listening to him, it's like he's a little kid again. Um, so that that's one of the coolest traditions that they have. Another good one that kind of gets lost uh, nowadays, it was big back in the 90s when Virginia Tech was making a name for itself under Frank Beamer, but the lunch pail. So the lunch pail symbolizes uh, yeah. the, the blue-collar work ethic of Hokie players and current defensive coordinator Bud Foster. Now, he was a co-D coordinator back in 1995 when um, they kind of rose back to power in uh, college football. and co-defensive coordinator Rod Sharpless wanted this idea of, you know, something that would symbolize their blue collar mentality. So his mother-in-law found an old beat up a lunch pail that used to belong to a coal miner. And after they had a record setting defensive season in 95, they decided to keep it. And, and probably the coolest thing now is that is considered like a trophy. It's sacred. It's, it's only entrusted by one member of the defense and inside it contains the names of the 32 Hokies who died in the tragedy on April 16th, 2007. So I think that's a cool way to honor those victims and to yeah. let everybody know that, you know, they're Hokie strong and, um, you know, nothing's going to break them and, and nothing's going to steer them away from that blue collar, hardworking mentality. Um, their colors are burnt orange and Chicago maroon, and the reason why is because no other school has or had that color combination. So um, I was kind of thinking that, 
University of Texas was the only burnt orange team, but actually um, in looking at it closer, yes, it is a burnt orange color. And Chicago Maroon playing off the University of Chicago Maroons who used to rule college football back in the early 20th century. Um, and then one other kind of hokey thing, yes, pun intended, is between the third and fourth quarters, the student section will dance to the hokey pokey. So um, <laughs> there's a lot of people who mistakenly thought that the name was taken from that song. It has nothing to do with it, but uh, right. they still play that song and, and dance and have a good time to it between uh, the, the final stanza. Very so, nice. Well, so- I'm going to stick with the, uh, the Big East run that we have going here, and I'm going to go with Syracuse. Mm. And they're, they're nicknamed the Orange, which a lot of you may know that that was actually changed from the Orange Men or for the female sports, the Orange Women in 2004. And it was changed so it's kind of more gender neutral, uh, but also so it kind of splits ties from their previous mentions and representation of the Saltine Warrior, which was the Native American... Uh, mascot for the uh, Syracuse or for Syracuse at that time. And it was named that due to the abundant salt deposits in Syracuse, New York. So uh, that's, that's how we get the nickname of the orange now. And also uh, obviously they have their, their mascot changed to the giant orange that they have that you see running up and down the sidelines. Uh, The legend of 44 is probably their most well-known tradition uh, in reference to Jim Brown, Ernie Davis, and Floyd Little, who all ended up in the Hall of Fame and all wore number 44. It's since been retired from being used. I can't remember. I'm blanking on the year that they did that, but it was relatively recent Mm -hmm. to where they they stopped current players from being able to wear that number 44. And one of the um, things that they're most well known for doing during the game is the keys on third down in the carrier dome or the the loud house as it's re- referred to which always takes me back to high school games of uh students and and parents that would bring those out on uh key plays right. so uh didn't know that they did that that's kind of cool um homage back to uh high school football and such um and the last thing that I had on on Syracuse they have a a they spell Syracuse, so S Y R A C U S E after every first down. Hmm. So well, that that ensures that you know how to spell that word, then. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, sticking so, in the Big East uh, or the former Big East, um, we're going to go with Pitt, who is you know they're known around that university as saying "Hail to Pitt." So whenever you're talking about your athletic teams, primarily the football team, you're going to say hail to Pitt. So the Panthers nickname was given because the the Panther was known to roam Western Pennsylvania and the glorious mountains that are out there, but also the alliteration, the Pitt Panthers, is kind of a happy coincidence. Um, A tradition that uh, they love there, but I kind of scratch my head at, especially when I hear it at a bar, is the singing of Sweet Caroline between the third and fourth quarter. Now, it's much cooler at a football game because what they do is where most people will sing Sweet Caroline, bump, bump, bump. They'll say um, pit, pit, pit. And then um, 
when he says, uh, good times never felt so good. Instead of saying so good, so good, they'll yell, go pit, go pit. So they do put their own spin on it, um, okay. which is kind of neat. But uh, I always wondered why that's a bar favorite. And maybe it's just because when you're that drunk, uh, you'll sing anything, even Neil Diamond. And, and no disrespect to the singer, <laughs> but um, you would think that uh, college students or younger people at a bar are going to sing something a little bit more up-tempo as opposed to what comes off as like a folk song. But anyway, uh, off my soapbox. Um, the last thing that I, I thought was neat about pit traditions is the victory lights. And so whenever pit wins a football game, they will um, shine the light at the top of the cathedral of learning to make it shine golden. So pit, one of their colors being gold, um, they call these the victory lights and it can be seen throughout most of the campus. And while they'll, they'll shine that light when other sports teams are doing are, are successful as well. It's primarily a, a football tradition and one that they carry on and, and that students hope to see at the end of every Saturday contest. So let's get back over to you, Bip. Uh, do we have any more Big East teams or do we need to stray down to the next side? Well, uh, we, we have one more um, and they're kind of a pseudo Big East team, but I'm going to save them for my next one. Okay. But for So for now, I'm going to, I'm going to go with the Florida State Seminoles. Now they're named the Seminoles after a 1947 poll was taken by the students and the name uh, selected was specifically to honor the indomitable spirit of the the Florida Seminoles from the area. Yep. Um, now the ma- couple mascots that they have uh, go hand in hand of Osceola and Renegade, yep. the portrayed Seminole chief and his Appaloosa horse and Osceola hurls the burning spear that he holds at midfield to begin every game, which is, I think, maybe the the, the coolest pregame ritual in college football. Yeah. And hope that it doesn't go away anytime soon. Um, so the that another chant that uh, the Seminoles have the tomahawk chop and the war chant, which is probably recognized by just about everyone who watches football. It was uh, first played by the band against Auburn in 1984. The war chant was, and the story goes though, that it was thought up by a fraternity and kind of just spread to the student section throughout 1983. And as it adopted more fanfare, the band discovered it and started to add musical instruments and, uh, whatnot to it. So kind of a collaboration of fan and band uh, to get what we know as the war chant today. Now, quick Play question, Bip, do you, do you, sure. uh, are you a fan of the Tomahawk chop and the war chant or is it uh, overrun for you? Um, similar to some of the more well-known non uh, official fight songs, it's kind of overused. Right. So it kind of gets on my nerves from time to time, but if you took it away from college football, I would be severely disappointed as, you know, when I think of Saturdays, I think of the war chant comes to mind when I, when I, uh, imagine a band playing. How about you? Yeah, no, I, I, I like it. It honestly gives me the chills every time I hear it. And I'm not a, a diehard Florida State fan, but it to mm-hmm. me, that was one of the first things growing up and, and starting to get into college football. That was one of the first things that I associated with it. And, um, you know, I thought that was just a cool, uh, a cool feature for that football team. So, right, right. And so the last thing I want to get into real quick is called the Sod Cemetery. Now, this was really yeah. cool, uh, a cool tradition that I, I found started in 1960 against Georgia. Um, they went on the road uh, to play the Bulldogs, ended up winning, and 
uh, after they they came back uh, or when they came back, they had some of the sod from George's football field. And so what they'll do is for road victories that are dubbed as sod games uh, or which which contain, you know, any time that the Seminoles are an underdog or has kind of morphed to today's standards of any time they they view a game to be big enough that's on the road. If they win that game, they'll take some of the sod back and they'll bury it in the sod cemetery and each game will have its own mini headstone and Currently, they have 102 pieces of sod in their cemetery and uh, look to gain on that this upcoming season as well. That is pretty cool. So that finishes it for the Seminoles. Chappie, who, uh, take us to your last team for our uh, ACC traditions. Okay, well, um, finishing up in the coastal side, one of Florida State's uh, quote-unquote rivals or, or a team that they're used to playing year in and year out since they've been part of the ACC uh, the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets, or some people will refer to them as the Ramblin' Wreck. That's another school that kind of has two fight names or nicknames, although the Yellow Jackets are their official nickname. And this comes from uh, back in the day, uh, Georgia Tech students and fans and also some of their athletes would show up to sporting events wearing these yellow jackets, kind of as a uh, prestige item, um, a, a sign of class. And so because so many of them started wearing them, people just started to refer to them as, oh, those are those yellow, those Georgia Tech yellow jackets. Now, the Ramblin' Wreck name comes after, in 1961, a professor wanted to get a, a 1930 Model A Ford Coupe, um, and he couldn't get his hands on one until finally it was donated to him by a retired pilot. And so he and his uh, son wanted to restore the car, and it became an official part of Georgia Tech lore in 1961 after uh, after they played against the Rice Owls and won 24 to nothing after rolling this out onto the field and the players ran out behind it. They thought it would be kind of a cool way to um, to enter onto the stadium. And after such a dominating victory, they thought, well, this is going to be a, a symbol of good luck for us. This is truly fitting. And so they've kept it ever since the early 1960s. And again, that's one of those traditions that a lot of people, even outside of ACC country, look at and say, um, I love seeing that Ramblin' Wreck come out with the with the old style horn, and it will make its trip around um, Bobby Dodd Stadium, and just kind of a cool thing to see decked out in the, in the shiny gold coloring on it. Um, yeah, definitely one of the more iconic things from the ACC. I always enjoy seeing that run, roll onto the field. Yep. So... Georgia Tech being a, a school of technology, they have the whistle, which is meant to mimic the industrial whistle of the of the early 20th century. Um, on campus, it calls students to their shop classes, but also it blows after every tech touchdown during home games. Um, and following that, you can also hear the Georgia Tech fight song, which is one of my favorites because it has the line in there. Uh, like all the other good fellows, I drink my whiskey clear obviously a, a personal favorite of mine. So if you look up the Georgia Tech fight song, <laughs> there's that line in it, my favorite line from any college fight song. And then uh, there's something that they do at Georgia Tech, being that they are rivals with the University of Georgia Bulldogs, even though they're not in the same conference. When anybody from Tech asks you, what's the good word? Your response should be with affirmity, to hell with Georgia, you say. Um and uh, now you may have some other choice words for your neighbor, too, but to hell with Georgia is something that is standard and you better repeat and, and say to your neighbor whenever they pose that question to you when you're on the Georgia Tech campus. Um, 
So that's Georgia Tech in a nutshell, Bip. So they say to hell with Georgia. I say give us your your last and final team, even though they're not in the ACC officially. Um, tell us about uh, a pseudo ACC team. Yeah, how much are we going to get yelled at for this? <laughs> oh, they need to join a conference first before you can chronicle them. <laughs> We're gonna, of course going to go with the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. Um, now, a lot of debate as to what their actual origin of the Fighting Irish name is. One thought is that uh, one of their presidents um, was at the the Battle of the Gettys was at the Battle of Gettysburg and served as as the uh, chaplain for the Irish Brigade. Another story comes from an 1899 game against Northwestern. Uh, Notre Dame was up 5-0 at the half when Wildcat fans started chanting, kill the fighting Irish, kill the fighting Irish. And another story even still uh, states that during a 1909 game against Michigan with the team trailing, one Notre Dame player yelled to his teammates with names like Dolan, Kelly, Donnelly, Duffy, and Ryan, said, what's the matter with you guys? You're all Irish and you're not fighting worth a lick. So Notre Dame ended up coming back to win that game, and someone in the press overheard that remark and reported the game as a victory for the, quote, fighting Irish. Hmm. So take that as you will. Um, no one's real sure of the official uh, origin, but those are a few of the stories. Lots of traditions to go through, so I'll just uh, jump around a little bit here. The green jerseys that they wear, they date back to Newt Rockney, who brought them out uh, when they played against teams of similar color schemes so that his quarterbacks could better identify his teammates. And now they're used on special occasions like senior day, big games. Um, you might see him periodically used. Uh, the play like a champion sign, one of the more iconic things in college football that I'm sure most people recognize. The Irish players walk down the steps and into the tunnel from their locker room and touch the sign for good luck, uh, with each player having their own specific method of doing so. After each game, win or loss, the band plays the Notre Dame Our Mother um, alma mater, where players and coaches link arms and sway left to right as they sing to the band in the student section uh, after every home game. Uh, one of the newer traditions that I personally love is at the beginning of every game, they'll play a, a song called here come the Irish. And then immediately after that last note, it will turn into shipping up to Boston. And I get goosebumps every time I hear that bomb bomb and the crowd mm -hmm. just starts to go nuts. And that plays off right before the opening kickoff, uh, regardless of who's receiving the ball. At the end of every third quarter, they play Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture, and they do a hand gesture to honor the current coach. They had W's for um, and used the gesture with their hands for both uh, Ty Willingham and Charlie Weiss. And now they uh, they pose K's with their both hands to for um, current coach Brian Kelly. Hmm. The Celtic chant is accompanied by the student section and their arms, and they alternate up and down, almost like pistons, and model after the Fighting Irish Leprechaun logo um, <laughs> to the tune of that that song, which is really cool. If you're in the stadium or you see it on TV, you see all of them move, and it's just one of those kind of trippy optical illusions of, of everyone moving all together. It's kind of a cool thing to see. I'm sure it is um, cool, but I'm getting a funny visual. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the a few of their sayings is are uh, they have the plain Jane go Irish, um, <laughs> and when they run out of their tunnel, they'll run out to here come the Irish. Um, 
during the games, they'll have uh, one set one side of the stadium chant "We are," and the other side chant "ND." And uh, the the chant that they normally go with, which is can be in stadium, is a, a lot of the times used outside of the stadium, walking to and from games. They'll have uh, someone shout "Go Irish, Go Irish," and then whoever their opponent is will say. Uh, those they'll then say be Trojans, be Trojans. <laughs> so some of the cool, uh, 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 I know I'm getting a little nerdy on these and, and providing a lot, but, no, it's uh, okay, that, man. that's what I keep on, what I came up with for my, my Notre Dame Irish and, uh, wraps us up with our, our ACC traditions. Um, again, was really, really enjoyed digging into the research of, of these schools, what makes them tick, what makes them unique across the country. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's cool to step into that because uh, you know, obviously with us being outside of both the ACC and the SEC realm in terms of being able to go to some of those uh, venues regularly, it's, it's cool to see what makes each of these universities unique and, and to see some of these traditions that are, over a hundred years old and some of them that are maybe as, as new as 20 years old or so. And I think it just adds chapters to the reasons why the college game is to, to us a lot more enjoyable than anything else out there in the football world. So uh, yeah, thanks for the research BIP and thanks for the, the insight. Oh yeah, absolutely. So where can you find us? Obviously you, you know where to find us in one location, but if this is not as convenient for you, if it was shared to you by somebody and you're thinking, okay, do they have it on this platform or that platform? We can be found on Spotify, on Apple podcasts, on Google play, breaker, stitcher, overcast, radio, public pocket casts, basically, um, Follow us on Twitter and, and we'll tweet it out. We'll tweet you the link. So all you got to do is just click and you can play it uh, streaming on your PC. You can play it through your phone or your tablet or whatever the other device you you, you choose to have. So um, that's going to bring us to a close for this evening. We want to thank our, our sponsor, theblacktux.com. But most importantly, we want to thank all of you for listening. Some of you are, are here for multiple times. Some of you may be tuning in for the first time. We hope that you enjoyed the coverage that we gave you. We hope we uh, gave you enough tradition to stew over. And if any of you are ACC fans and felt that we missed something or maybe didn't chronicle something uh, accurately, please let us know. We are humble enough to, to make those corrections because we love to give you uh, the good stuff and we love to give you what's right. And we thank you for choosing us because sometimes bigger isn't always better. So thanks for choosing the right over the rest. Bip, thanks for joining us tonight, brother. Anything else? Any final thoughts? Nope. Just want to say thanks again. Another great episode. And for all the listeners, we'll ACC you next time. You betcha. Keep bowling, everybody. Peace, Bip. Peace. <laughs>